My name is Hemish Alangaratne, and I'm the founder of RX Group and the host of Let's Talk Quality. Let's Talk Quality is a podcast aimed at quality assurance professionals in pharma and biotech. Join us to learn from some of the best QA leaders around the world and hear how they've developed their careers as they provide some practical insights into how they've got to the top of their field. Our mission is to shine a light on what good quality assurance really means for pharma and biotech. What impact does it really have on the patient? We want to explore some of the biggest challenges facing the sector and inspire the next generation of quality assurance leaders to continue to help bring safer and better quality therapies to patients. Welcome to season one. I hope you enjoy the show. Greg, how are you doing? Uh, welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good to be here. Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks, Greg. Um, we've um, we've been talking for some time now um, about a particular topic, which um, is a really interesting topic. It's not um, it's not something that anyone's um, spoken about so far on on the podcast. So um, I think that yeah, well, I'm interested to to, to hear your views, and, and and I'm sure that um, a lot of people will 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 get some people thinking. Um, before we get into it, Greg, do you want to give everyone a, um, a quick overview of who you are um, and, and a bit about a bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Greg Furrow. I'm, I'm currently Chief Quality Officer of Mustang Bio. Um, we are a cell and gene therapy company. I've been in pharmaceutical biological business since the mid '80s. I spent over 20 years at Eli Lilly and Company and five years at Charles River, uh, which is a um, contract research organization. I, I went to a different contract research, organiz- research organization, Will Research. I was there for five years. And uh, Will was eventually purchased by Charles River. So I left Charles River a second time and I went to a nonprofit, uh, Southern Research based out of Birmingham, Alabama, and um, came to Mustang Bio about five years ago. And mostly in quality assurance, quality control laboratory, uh, leadership and management kinds of positions. Nice, nice. Well, um, so um, to add some context then um, to this topic, I suppose, Greg, you're, you're a distinguished SQA um, speaker, um, you do a lot of talks on on this topic, and it's something that you feel um, quite strongly and passionately about, um, and rightly so. So, um, I suppose that the the topic that we're going to talk about um, is around experts, um, experts in in the industry, and and I suppose how how do we know that you can believe someone um, at the crux of it is what we're going to talk about because. The, we're working in a highly, highly regulated industry. There are strict regulations that professionals must follow. Um, there's a lot of people that talk um, and give opinions. Um, and I suppose what we're going to talk about today is the, um, I suppose the, 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 um, the, the belief that is is everything that you hear and what you. Um, listen to and the answers that you you get from individuals. How do you know if you can trust these opinions? Um, so, if, one, can you give some context to um, to to all of this um, before we get into it? Sure. Let me try to set the stage on how I got here. Probably about ten years ago, I uh, 
started paying attention to a slide that we were required to use when we were presenting at the Society of Quality Assurance, SQA. And the slide read, opinions expressed are those of the individual, not SQA, its board of directors, committees, or specialist sections. And it made sense to me. It's a disclaimer of um, SQA is not liable if I'm on the podium and I say something that's not accurate. And we make all of our speakers put that disclaimer in their slide presentation. Then it occurred to me, well, gee, you know, um, does that make it so that uh, I can be someone who has a recognized expert and give opinions or ideas at the podium and they don't have to be accurate? Or hmm. I might think they're accurate, but I could be mistaken. And so I, I just go back and I started thinking about my history as a leader in uh, compliance. And I go to uh, a point in time where I was in one of my first uh, senior management positions for good laboratory practices, QA, and hmm. had not been in that role very long before people started coming to me with questions about compliance, both my staff people in my company, Eli Lilly and company at the time, um, people in other companies. I was active in pharma and part of a network, and, and we would ask each other questions, and people would come to me, and I would give them my thoughts on the answers to the questions. And looking back in time, I recognize, although maybe I was qualified to be elevated as an expert because I was in management of quality assurance and active in SQA, that didn't necessarily mean that I was right all the time. And I do know that there were a few times. One example was uh, there was some debate around the early 2000s about whether or not it was required for test article characterization for a GLP study to be done GLP. And I had colleagues in pharma, and they were making the argument, trying to convince FDA that, no, uh, the test article characterization is not required to be GLP, even using the regulations. So I would quote the definition of a non-clinical laboratory study, which says that um, test article characterization is not a non-clinical laboratory study. And I and other people in other pharma companies were using that as a, it's in the regulations. It says, test article characterizations, not a non-clinical laboratory study, so it's not required to be GLP. But I was mistaken. Uh, test article characterization is not a standalone non-clinical laboratory study in FDA. It's part of a non-clinical laboratory study and everything that's part of a non-clinical laboratory study is required to be GLP. So there's an example of one thing that I can think of 25 years ago that I was sharing with people and saying, the definition excludes test article characterization from GLP compliance, but I was misreading the regulation and misquoting. Um, I didn't know that I was mistaken. I truly hmm. believed that that was a fact. And it wasn't really until I started working for Jim McCormick, who had been the head of the biosearch monitoring program at FDA for several years, that uh, I began to learn 
you know, really how to read the regulations and understand the preambles and guidance documents the way that he did as really a, a global expert in GOP. So thinking back of questions I'd answered, where else did I answer a question 20, 25 years ago that I believed at the time I was correct based on fact or based on the way Lilly did it or based on my interpretation of the regulations? But maybe I was mistaken. And there could be people out there who sat in on a training session that I taught, and they believe that they understand because I explained it in a class or in a lecture at the podium. And they don't know that years later I realized, oh, I was mistaken about that. Hmm. So that was 25 years ago when you made those mistakes, right? You're now right. like a, you're, you're a chief quality officer. Um, yeah, what, like, firstly, I suppose, what, what were the, like, were there any consequences of those uh, mistakes that you made or, or anything that came off them? Like, what's the, I suppose, what's the risk in all, all, all of this if, you know, for, because you're, you're now a chief quality officer. I assume that, and maybe this is me mistaken, I assume that everything that you tell me around quality assurance will be completely correct. Um, because you've, You've got that title. You've you've been around. You've you've highly experienced in your field. So, um, should I be wrong in thinking that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, I won't I won't answer a question or do any teaching about anything that I'm not confident that I know for sure. But how do you know that? Just because I'm yeah. an expert, just because I was referred to you by somebody, just because of my title, just because mm -hmm. of my network of experts that I know well and work with, or the the professional societies or the companies that I've worked with, you know, yeah. there's evidence that I should know a lot. There's evidence yeah. that I should understand a lot. But how do you know the difference between when I'm right about something because of my experience and network, or will I, where I still might be mistaken? Now, it's the only way for you to really know is if I can move from a place of being the expert and answering your questions or telling you how I do it or how I understand it, rather to helping you understand how to answer the question yourself. So I learned um, that it, it usually is not enough to just answer a question about a regulatory requirement with the answer. Really, mm. you need to pull in, here's the actual regulatory requirement from uh, a book on the regulations. Or here's where someone asked a question about that requirement and FDA answered in a preamble or published a guidance yeah. document. And frankly, uh, I never get too far away from having a copy of the regulations at my fingertips. I don't mm. rely on you know, what I think anymore, I always turn to the actual language because how it's worded is very distinct and intentional. So referring yeah. directly to regulations, guidance documents, um, got, and preambles. And so when I try to answer your question, hopefully I give you more than just an answer that you can say, oh, thank you. I got what I wanted. Mm. But maybe I can give you the basis for the answer and the background yeah. enough so that you can understand the answer.
And it's mm -hmm. not just because me, the expert, answered your question. You will go off and say, well, Greg told me. Well, yeah. gee, I, I don't want anyone ever saying, we do it because Greg said, or we do mm -hmm. it because QA said, or we do yeah. it because I was at a class at SQA and they told me, no, it really should go to, what's the basis for the answer? How do you know it's real? Yeah. And why does this all why does this all matter? Because everyone will learn of people in any walk of life, in any uh, profession, you, you generally learn from the people that taught you, um, people that hired you, previous bosses, um, previous colleagues. Um, and in certain industries, particularly pharma and biotech, um, there is a heightened um, risk of, um, I suppose, you know, in, um, incorrect information. Um, but so what's what is why is this all important like why why are we talking about it and what's the what like what are the risks i suppose so for me the risk is uh we have people especially who might come to a conference like uh society of quality assurance annual meeting or uh quality college and we teach courses so we're bringing in people who want to learn about regulatory requirements and learn about compliance and and they should and they should be taught about compliance from people who are experienced but mm. i then if i'm the teacher i have the obligation to make sure that i'm not just teaching from what i learned at my company or not just teaching from something i learned from a colleague in pharma uh, or teaching on my personal preference and but i'm tempted because it is kind of nice to be the expert. It is kind of nice to be treated like a professor. And it stokes my ego when people ask me questions and, and I can answer and they're appreciative. Um, and, and I'm tempted. And it's, it's easy to answer questions. And sometimes the questions themselves um, might lead some people to answer the question in a way that may be contrary to a regulatory requirement. So oftentimes I'll see in a public forum, someone will ask a question and they'll ask it, what do you do at your firms? How do you do it at your companies? And then people will answer, well, here's how we do it at our company. And they're hmm. accurate. They're, they're being honest. It is how they do it at their company. But maybe they're not compliant at their company. And so yeah. what I really want people to do is, is catch those and recognize, oh, you know, we do it this way. And the FDA has never cited it or we've had inspections and they never complained about it. Um, I'd like for people to move away from telling how we do it and, and go do the basics. Just be basic about this is the regulatory requirement. Um, some people will ask things. I saw a question not too long ago, someone asking about um, where did you document the sponsor's representative in a non-clinical laboratory study report or protocol? And people jumped in and they answered. This is where you document the sponsor's representative. But the thing is, sponsor's representative is not a defined term in the regulations. It, it's not in there. So... There isn't a correct answer, a regulatory compliant answer for GLP about where do you include the sponsor's representative. 
what you need to do is ask, what do you mean when you say sponsor's representative? You know, what, who is that person? What's their role? And maybe if you understand their role, what they're doing, are they um, acting as a principal investigator? Well, gee, that's a whole different uh, requirement. Um, are they um, the archivist or some other role is defined? Well, that changes the answer. Sponsor's representative is, well, we can make up what that means. But we had people that answered that question. Here's where you put the sponsor's representative. Now, their answer wasn't necessarily wrong, but the person who got that answer didn't learn anything except hmm. for, oh, if I if I call someone sponsor representative, I can include it here or here. For me, I don't care where they include it because it's not a defined term, not a defined role. You work in you know, obviously working at Mustang Bio, um, cell therapy, um, you don't have traditional, you know, it's not like traditional pharma and biotech where you have 100 plus years of data and regulations to to fall back on. So if someone in your business and your team asks you a question, um, how do you, and then say, for example, if the, if the regulations aren't particularly as clear or, or as well-defined as, say, um, small small molecules, for example, like how, where do you go then? How do you, how do you go about um, teaching and coaching and, and answering questions in, in, a, in a newer field of medicine where the, where the regulations might not be as clear-cut? I think the regulations are very clear-cut, even hmm. in biological. Now, um, yeah. Some of the, the processes are sp- still being developed, but the regulations that apply have been in place for several years. The same yeah. uh, good laboratory practices, good manufacturing practices, good clinical practices that apply to pharmaceuticals or small molecules apply to biologicals. Now, hmm. the, the, the piece of compliance, compliance is not gray. So how to determine, is this compliant or not? There's always a way to find the, yeah. the fact of what is compliant. What's challenging is how to, how to get there. Um, mm. the, the pathway to determine, is it compliant or not, um, may be a little bit more challenging if you're using cells and gene therapy as opposed to a small molecule. But when it comes down to it, the regulations are the same. And that's, again, why I want people to turn to the basics. If you understand the basics and understand how to understand compliance and understand where to look for the questions that have already been asked about compliance, those are in the preambles. So most of the questions people have about uh, would it be compliant if or why is this a requirement, those were asked Hmm. years ago and already answered by the FDA. So it's really, um, I, you know, people have a tendency, especially um, expert compliance people, uh, to make compliance seem complicated or difficult. And I, I, I don't think it is. I mean, gee whiz, uh, this is uh, FDA GLPs. Look. You know, it's, you know, what is it? 41 pages. You know, there's not much. I mean, it's, it, it really is simple. Now, 
I have said on the podium before that in my perspective, the GLPs are simple and easy. I've had yeah. monitoring authority uh, representatives come up to me and and say something about my presentation and say, I agree with everything, except I don't think that uh, the regulations are easy. Well, mm. I, I do. I think you keep on pushing them down to get to the basics, how to understand them as very simple building blocks. You keep it easy, mm. and it's easier to be compliant and easier to answer questions based on the facts. Yeah. So what is the solu solution you've mentioned there like around how people should refer to the basics and how should people be answering questions but what is your what's the goal of of you talking about this what would you what would your your message to the community be i want people to think the goal is understanding when you ask a question about compliance i want your goal to be understanding compliance but now, the people who ask questions aren't always seeking understanding. Sometimes they want an answer It's because it's easier to have an expert say, here's how you do it, because the jobs can be tough. Uh, and then, you know, some people have bigger jobs than others. We're limited number of quality people covering a larger organization. Um, they're looking for easy answers. And really, I'd like for them to recognize that the easy answers are at their fingertips. When you go mm. to training, learn how to understand the regulatory requirements yourself based on how to look. Where do you look? Where do you go to find the answer yourself? And when you ask me a question, I'd like for you to expect me to explain it to you and point you to the background behind why something is required. Uh, I think it's an uphill climb though, because people are busy and I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's like, you know, the old um, saying about do you if you give a person a fish, they eat for the day. If you teach them how to fish, they eat forever. So I want to teach people how to fish. I don't want to just give people fish. But sometimes people are just hungry today, and they just want to fish. And people will say mm -hmm. to the expert, "Oh, but you're so good. You know it." I trust your answer, and 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 I know that you're right. But we have experts in the past where someone I admire, like uh, Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling um, is one of the few people who have won more than one Nobel Prize. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and a few years later, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And then in his later years, he started talking about mega vitamin therapy. And his Nobel Prize was in chemistry, not medicine. And he was a smart guy and talked um, knowledgeably about vitamins and large doses of vitamins. But was he right about that? Was he an expert on vitamins and medicine? I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support what he used to talk about along those lines. But uh, even someone like Linus Pauling, who's clearly one of the greatest scientists we've had uh, in in at least uh, uh, the last couple hundred years, he moved to a place where he wasn't necessarily an expert, but people treated him like an expert. Uh, you look at things like uh, what we hear constantly uh, 
fake news. We're surrounded by two different opinions, uh, Fox News versus MSNBC. And if you believe one over the other, you're probably mistaken. Uh, we have the results of the 2020 United States presidential election. There are experts and significantly powerful people who believe that the election was stolen. And there are experts and significantly powerful people who believe, no, it was a fair election. I'm not going to weigh in on either side. But most of us here in the United States know that there are people who are election deniers and people who are election believers. Now, with that kind of backdrop, where people will believe the expert if it is what they want to hear, how do I? How do I get them to stop and think about the facts and find the answers for themselves? Now, it's tougher with the election and all that, but with <laughs> the regulations, geez, it's not that tough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. We'll avoid going into a chat about politics for now. We'll save that for another time. Mm -hmm. um, but um, what would your, uh, what would your, um, I suppose, where do you think whose responsibility it is to 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 raise awareness in all of this? Is it the industry as a whole? Is it the the leaders that are coming through? Is it the people that are? Um, is it the the regulators? Where does the the, who's accountable for for this continuous coaching um, and and teaching the right practices um, and the and, and the way to answer questions? I think it's everybody. I think the experts have to be responsible for the answers they give and the explanations they give. And I think they should recognize that when someone asks you a question um, as an expert, what you really have now is a responsibility to teach. So answer the question with some teaching and explaining and help them achieve understanding, not just to get their hands on an answer. I want people to, to recognize when they're asked to speak or invited to speak or allowed to speak that they have an obligation to teach. Now, on the other side, I'd like to educate the people who are learning as well to recognize you have a responsibility. So I have received loads of questions through the years, some written, some questions are written very long. And as the longer it takes for someone to write a question, the more they might be trying to lead me to the answer that they want. Uh, if you talk with anyone who's been in a big quality assurance organization, you hear them talk about people answer shopping. You know, I used to sit in the office of uh, my QA unit at Lilly and I could hear the phones ring from one desk to the next desk to the next desk where someone was just checking with one QA person and another QA person trying to find the answer they wanted. So recognize that you might have that behavior when you're learning, that you want to maybe not necessarily get the education to understand, but the justification to do what you want to do or the justification to continue to do what you have been doing. So it's really the whole community needs to recognize that experts have a responsibility for having the basis behind 
what they're explaining and doing teaching. And the people asking questions and learning should recognize that, you know, try not to lead the expert. Try not to tell them the answer that you want or try to pull that out of them. Because you can ask your question in such a way that when I answer it, I might use your terminology and I could be taken out of context because I use a couple of your words and you put them together differently and walk away with a different understanding or a different belief of what I told you because you're, you're putting your weight in what I told you more so than in your own understanding. Yeah. It's the yeah. understanding that I'm going for. That I, yeah. I want people not to just trust that the experts know what they're doing because they probably do. I mean, yeah. I'd like to think I'm right 99% of the time. What about that 1%? And what if I'm mistaken about the 99? What if I'm only right 80% of the time? What if, what if I get the recognition I get as uh, an expert because I'm willing to speak? I'm willing to teach. I'm willing to talk with the FDA. But how much of the time am I actually right? And, and where am I deluded about what I think I understand? Because I've been learning about compliance for 35 years. And I learned from people that didn't understand compliance at different times. What they understood was the way our company did it. Brilliant. Um, Greg, we usually end with a couple of quick fire questions, which I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, um, based on, on what we've discussed today. But, um, first question, what, what advice would you give to future quality assurance professionals and future quality assurance leaders? Keep it simple. The, the requirements, the regulations are not complicated. There can be a bunch of them. So depending on what you're doing, you might have to check different uh, versions uh, or different regulations, different manufacturing regulations, uh, global regulations. Um, so the landscape can be complicated, but the requirements are simple. So don't, don't think of it as complicated. Think of it as something you can learn and you can understand and you can be as expert as I am. Nice. Um... Final question. Uh, what, what inspires you now? What gets you up in the morning? Oh, geez. So many things, I guess. Uh, for me personally right now, the most inspirational thing is um, what we do at Mustang right now is saving lives. We have a product for treating lymphoma um, where some clinical trial subjects have received that drug and they're alive today. And had they not received that drug, it's unlikely they'd be alive. And so several dozen uh, clinical trial subjects are alive because we're working on this new uh, CAR-T therapy to treat lymphoma. And um, there is nothing better than that. Even if just one person um, had... Uh, survived and we're getting strong clinical responses complete responses um it's just uh that's truly rewarding very good 
Um, Greg, been a really interesting podcast. It's been um, a topic that nobody's spoken about, um, but something that's obviously very important um, in, in the industry. So um, thank you very much for your time and for uh, coming on the show. Um, I'm sure that there'll be plenty of people that might want to get in touch with you to, to ask you your opinion mm-hmm. on, on certain things. So is um, is LinkedIn the best way to, to get hold of you or are there any um, LinkedIn is any other good. ways? Yeah. LinkedIn is a good way to do that. Um, and if someone wants more in-depth back and forth, I can supply an email address or phone number, those kinds of things. And I just want to thank you for the invitation, the opportunity to do this, just even beginning to talk about this and beginning to have people think about understanding versus just getting answers. You're going to help me uh, spread the word a little bit. So thank you. Brilliant. No, well, let's let's keep the conversation going, and we'll maybe in a year's time let's have another conversation about it in another episode. Sounds good. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Speak thank soon. you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's show. I hope that you got value from it, whether you're starting your career in quality or if you're at the top of your field. Today's episode was brought to you by RX Group. I'm the founder of RX Group. We are a pharma and biotech recruitment organization focusing purely on quality assurance. We recruit consultants and senior level permanent quality professionals into the pharma and biotech industry. If we can support you, whether that be in a hiring capacity or if you yourself are looking for work, Please get in touch with me on LinkedIn, visit our LinkedIn page where you can subscribe to the podcast and visit our website www.rx-group.io to find out more about us. See you soon.